culture in a business is like in the White House is very important. And the culture cannot be one based upon self-satisfaction or politics. It's got to be one based upon love of country and service to others. We can't solve all problems, but we have proven through PEPFAR that we can solve big ones. I'm a believer that we're all God's children, and the idea of people needlessly dying and creating a plethora of orphans and uh, knowing Al-Qaeda was active in Africa, all of a sudden my moral view and my national security view became aligned. And I said, let's do something about it. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with President George W. Bush. George W. Bush served as President of the United States from 2001 to 2009, eight of the most consequential years in American history. During his presidency, he led America's response to the September 11th terrorist attacks in 2001, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and the 2008 global financial crisis. He led a number of historic humanitarian efforts, including the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, PEPFAR, and the president's malaria initiative. Before serving as president, he served as governor of Texas and worked in the Texas oil industry. Since leaving office, President George W. Bush has led the George W. Bush Presidential Center at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Today, he remains actively involved in issues of national and global concern through the George W. Bush Institute, a policy institute that is part of the center and operated by the George W. Bush Foundation. He continues to emphasize education, global health, human freedom, and support of the military. Mr. President, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to have you on, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I'll always be grateful for the opportunity you gave me to serve as your Treasury Secretary and for your steadfast leadership of our country, particularly during the global financial crisis. We're going to spend most of today's conversation talking about one of the most important and least understood initiatives of your presidency, the PEPFAR AIDS program which celebrates its 20th anniversary this year. But before we get to your policies and presidencies, let's start with George W. Bush, the man. You had a very unique upbringing as a child of a storied political family. What are the most important lessons that your father and mother instilled in you? Uh, that no matter how I behave, they would love me. They also taught me that setting priorities in life is very important, which was important later on in my life because one of their priorities was beyond their faith was their family. And my dad got extremely busy in life, but my brothers and my sister and me never doubted that we were his priority. And that enabled me when I became a governor and president to assure our girls that Lauren, my priority for them was that they grow up, you know, in a loving household. It is unique. I mean, after all, only eight years separated two Bushes who happened to be president. But the life lessons that I learned from my dad and mother are applicable all across our society. They sure are, because I got to tell you, I've known a lot of people that were very successful. But when it's all said and done, if you don't have friends and family, it's not a very fulfilling life. Before beginning your career in politics, you were a businessman. 
What did you learn, Mr. President, from your experience founding a company and then as owner of the uh, Texas Rangers? Well, I learned that the environment and, and the business world can be cyclical. I was a small oil and gas guy, and everybody thought the price of oil was going to 200. And therefore, there was great optimism and unrealistic optimism. As a result, there's a lot of lousy investments, it turns out, because uh, oil is a commodity and the price didn't go up forever. It went down. Uh, and I witnessed a bank run. First National Bank of Midland had a run, and I happened to be over there with a buddy of mine, and we watched the run. And my only point is, is that the marketplace can be pretty cruel. And therefore, in the business world, you got to be aware of risk and reward. The other thing I learned in baseball was to find people who knew the definition of a good outfielder and delegate to them and say, go find a good outfielder. If we need an outfielder, you go find the outfielder. Those are important lessons, which I know I extended to my time in public office. Mr. President, I can tell you it made a huge difference. Business is a noble profession and business create the jobs, you know, and, and grow the economy. And you knew how to relate to business, how to ask the right questions with business. And uh, you sure knew that. And you sure knew how to delegate. I saw that on a firsthand basis. More importantly, Hank, I knew how to find people who knew what the hell they were talking about and knew a lot more about a subject than I did. You've got to have people you can trust and listen to them carefully. And most of the time, their ideas are good. Sometimes they're not. But nevertheless, the culture of smart people being listened to creates a team. And the other thing that you and I both know is that culture in a business is like in the White House is very important. And the culture cannot be one based upon self-satisfaction or, you know, politics. It's got to be one based upon love of country and service to others. Therefore, it's more likely to create a joyous circumstance as opposed to, you know, backbiting and angry and negative. Well, and you sure created that culture. And I saw, I worked, I've worked with all kinds of leaders all over, over the world. And they come with different strengths and weaknesses. But the best ones are like you, Mr. President. They surround themselves with people that help play to their strengths and make sure that they, you know, get all the facts. The other thing that really pleasantly surprised me on the upside when I came to your administration was your decision-making process, how fair it was. Everybody got a chance to present their views. It was, uh, it was really quite remarkable. Now, I'd like to discuss an area that you and I worked on most closely, the global financial crisis. And as you said, you'd witnessed bank runs earlier in your career. There was a time before we stopped the panic and recapitalized some 700 banks when we were looking at the prospects of another Great Depression, but you remained calm throughout. So what are the George W. Bush crisis management principles? Well, step one is to remain calm, because if, if a leader panics during a stressful period, uh, others will panic as well. Secondly, you got to have faith in the people that surround you. I had great faith in uh, your capacity, Bernanke's capacity to rally a team of smart people. And I remember uh, when you came in the Roosevelt room with a bunch of the uh, financial experts, some of whom I had known, Ken Wilson, for example. And I'm looking around the table and say, these guys know what they're talking about. These men and women are smart. They're capable. And uh, once you have that confidence, I, well, I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Of course. None of us knew. I mean, this was a cascading problem. 
And so delegating for me was a very easy decision because I trusted everybody. Once you trust people, then much easier to project a sense of calm. Plus, I had a lot of other stuff going on. I mean, <laughs> there was, the financial meltdown was the big guy, but we had troops in Afghanistan, troops in Iraq. We had Russia invading Georgia. I mean, we had all kinds of stuff going on. But yeah, calm is essential for leadership. And the other thing that really struck me about you was the fact that you put politics aside and you said, what's best for the American people? Anybody that knew you knew you weren't a big fan of Wall Street, right? And you didn't particularly love the auto industry either. But you kept saying to me, do what you need to do to save our economy, right? Do what you need to do. And the other thing was support. I remember a time when it was the darkest right after I thought we'd recapitalized the banks and Citibank was ready to go. And you came over to see me at Treasury and you said, Hank, are you sleeping? And I said, I'm not sleeping that well. And you said, why not? And I said, I don't want to be Andrew Mellon. You laughed. And, and I said to you, listen, no one's heard of Mellon, but they've heard of Hoover. And you said, Hank, that's ridiculous. We're not Hoover, we're Roosevelt One, right? And you said, welcome this. You've prepared your whole life for this. We've had a lot of time to work together. What if this had happened with an incoming administration and they didn't know each other? Welcome it. So I, I, I remember I thought that was terrific. I, tru I truly believe that. And by the way, on the autos, uh, I said, damn sick and tired of bailing out these terrible investments. You came in and said the autos are about to fail. And I said, let them fail, Hank. And you said, Mr. President, if you do, the psychology of the country is too fragile. And if it happens, we're back to where we were. And you made a hell of a case. I said, all right. And then you put together a hell of a deal, a debtor in possession type uh, instrument that was then undermined later on. But nevertheless, uh, by doing that with particularly General Motors, it really kind of calmed down the, the nervousness. Yeah, because what would have happened was if General Motors had gone down, it would have taken down Ford and Chrysler and then all of the suppliers and there would have been a couple a million people out of work because the banks weren't able to provide the normal debtor in possession funding that you have uh, during an industrial bankruptcy. So you saw that. And what, what I really appreciated, it was the last thing you were looking to do on your way out the door, right? You sure weren't want to say, well, guess what? I want to bail out the auto industry. You held your nose and you did it. And it made a big difference. Mr. President, you were a, a great leader, and I felt that when I brought you bad news after bad news, rather than clocking me across the head, you just encouraged me. And I remember we always had this joke, it's just enough dynamite to stop it, right? It never was. <laughs> and a city group, you asked me if it was enough dynamite, and I said if it wasn't, I was going to put put a stick in my mouth and light it, right? <laughs> so any of it. Now let's talk about the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, known as PEPFAR. This transformative effort to prevent and treat AIDS in Africa is celebrating its 20th anniversary year. It has provided over a billion dollars in funding and saved millions of people and a generation of children in Africa. What inspired you to create PEPFAR, Mr. President? Did you ever imagine that PEPFAR would save 25 million lives? I never imagined it'd be that successful. I was hopeful it'd be that successful. Nobody ever said, if we do this, we will save 25 million lives. On the other hand, I knew there was a pandemic wiping out a generation of people on the continent of Africa. And 
our mutual friend Condoleezza Rice, then National Security Advisor, said, there's a pandemic. And I said, prove it. And she did. And I'm a believer that uh, we're all God's children. And the idea of people needlessly dying, or what appeared to be needlessly dying, and creating a plethora of orphans that would be looking for love, and uh, knowing Al-Qaeda was active in, in Africa, all of a sudden, my moral view and my national security view became aligned. And I said, let's do something about it. And uh, we put together a business plan, one that basically set clear goals and aligned authority and responsibility and got Congress to fund it and got after it. As PEPFAR became more successful, other nations started joining in as well. It's been really successful. And for that, I'm very grateful. It really, really has made a huge transformative difference. Now, one of the things that I found interesting is you surprised Congress in announcing PEPFAR in your State of the Union. What was the strategy there? Well, I was worried about abstinence versus condoms. You know, I didn't want, you know, the, the whole prevention program could have gotten destroyed by politics. And I was more interested on the bigger picture, and that is lives saved. And so... We dropped it on Congress, and to the credit of both Republicans and Democrats, they saw that why this was important and agreed to fund it and basically steamrolled through any of the debate on the so-called social issues related to this program. In other words, it was a laser focus on the goal of saving lives. And once that became clear that this was not a political agenda, Democrats and Republicans jumped on board. Yep. And to me, if you would sort of let that get out before and started talking with various members, you might have developed more opposition, but you laid it on the whole world right out there with a big goal. That's right. And it was it was a surprise. And it, you don't want to surprise Congress as the president. On the other hand, we needed to this time because uh, it would help, it, it, and it did help drive momentum toward the necessary goal. What's interesting about PEPFAR, uh, Hank, is most Americans have no clue what we're talking about. They have no idea. In this day and age of isolationism, the fundamental question starts with, was it in our national interest to do this in the first place? And the answer is absolutely, it's in our national interest. Boy, do you see that. I was with my family in July of 2021 in the Southern Cone, South Africa, Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Zambia. And I'll tell you, people were still talking about that, and it makes such a big difference. But today you see China all over Africa, right? And talk about dropping something on Congress. So there's one other time you and I decide to do it, which was Fannie and Freddie, right? And we realized if we let it leak out that we were getting ready to nationalize them, put them into conservatorship, there was no result. But once we did it, they all came on board, right? Well, one of the problems that we had with Fannie and Freddie is they were unbelievably politically connected. And I mean, they had wonderful allies on the Hill and uh, that were unwilling to kind of get rid of the implicit guarantee. And therefore, they could make all kinds of wild investments. So I'd like to come back and build on a point you started making with PEPFAR, because you have a degree from Harvard Business School, which is quite unusual for a president. How did your business school training affect how PEPFAR program was designed and executed? The business school was a confidence booster for me. 
I was kind of floating around after college. I flew jets. I did this. I did that. My dad heard I'd gotten into Harvard Business School, and he said, are you going to go? I said, no, I spent too much time on the East Coast. I'm not that interested in going. He said, you ought to think about it because it'll broaden your horizons. When I look back at life, uh, that was unbelievably sagacious of him. And I went, and it did broaden my horizons. I don't think Harvard Business School can teach you how to be a president, but it can give you principles on how to manage because the job of the presidency is a management job. In order to make PEPFAR work, you had to have clear goals. If you have clear, easy to understand goals and measurable goals, then it's much easier to achieve a mission. Mr. President, as you know, the best ideas in the world don't go anywhere unless you design a program that'll work. And you had metrics. And the other thing that I loved about the PEPFAR program, watching it from afar, because I wasn't in your administration yet, but what you did, you realized you got it to implement something, it really takes buy-in. And you got buy-in from the African leaders and figured out how to assist them, give them the tools they need, but hold them accountable. And you could write a great Harvard Business School case on PEPFAR. Yeah, I probably won't, Hank. What's very interesting is it basically, what you're suggesting uh, is that America changed its view of foreign aid. It was no longer how much money you're giving, but how effective is the money that you're providing. And in order to make PEPFAR work, you had to have buy-in from local governments. So, for example, I spent some time with Kikwete the other day, who was the president of Tanzania. He reminded me about the time he went on TV to get tested for AIDS. So this is very early in PEPFAR. There was little testing going on. A lot of Africans were worried about getting tested for fear of what they might find out. And Kikwete goes on national TV with his wife and gets tested. My only point to you is, is that if you can get buy-in, in other words, if, if the le- local leaders view this as a joint venture, as opposed to, you know, here's your money and you must spend it this way, you'll get much better results. The European model, by the way, was measure us based upon how much money we give based upon our GDP, which was not results oriented. It was like, you know, dump it into the deal and say, you know, even though things may not have improved, at least we spent money. I used to get in arguments with like Jacques Chirac about this saying, you know, this is, this isn't helping Jacques. What we need is we need partnerships. And thankfully when I was president, there was enough leaders that were capable of leading. They sure were, and it made a big difference. Now, Mr. President, people talk about the Lazarus effect when they talk about PEPFAR. And for those of our listeners who don't know the Bible, Lazarus was the man who had been dead for a number of days, was in the tomb, and Jesus raised him from the dead. You've seen this firsthand. Can you share with us what it was like to meet people that thought they had a death sentence and are still alive today? It's the epitome of joy. You know, people say, what's joy? Joy is when, you know, a nation like America uh, cares about whether people live or not and helps. And so, yeah, we met a lot of people that were condemned to death that were living joyfully. You know, in America, the land of plenty, we got a lot of people who don't really understand joy. In Africa, the land of hardly anything, there's a lot of joyful people. And the idea of wealthy nations caring about them And the idea of providing a medical system that enabled them to deal with AIDS and eventually with COVID at no cost and not demanding anything in return created a joyful situation. Mr. President, PEPFAR needs to be reauthorized this year. There are a lot of people in the U.S. and around the world 
who are increasingly isolationists. Why does a program that largely focuses on Africa matter? Well, first of all, human life should matter. And the idea of uh, lives dying, I'd say needlessly, because we've proven, the system has proven that we can save lives, I think undermines the moral standing of a country. I agree. We're very isolationist. I mean, after all, there are people willing to turn their back on Zelensky in Ukraine who's fighting off a bully in order to defend his democracy. And it's the same concept. Should we be worried about the human condition elsewhere? And my administration was, and my own personal belief is, absolutely we should be for our own sake, from a national security perspective, as well as from a moral perspective. We can't solve all problems, but we have proven through PEPFAR that we can solve big ones. We're going to get it reauthorized because no one can argue about whether or not the taxpayers' money are being spent effectively. Here's people that have so little and are so joyous and so resourceful. And when you look at that continent, which has got a big part of the global economy, something like 17% of the global GDP, but only 3% of the growth, 400 million people below the poverty line. And when you look at what the climate droughts and uh, heat is going to do and uh, to that part of the world and how important this natural capital is to biodiversity. It's a very, very important part of the world. And you said something once, and I always remembered it. You said great countries need to do great things. I'm pleased you brought the subject up because we are a great country and we should not retreat within our borders. We can't be all things to all people. I understand that. We've got our own problems at home, but we're capable of taking on big challenges, and that is a big challenge. Mr. President, one of the things that I really appreciated about your leadership was although you were realistic, you had a sense of optimism. During the financial crisis, you knew we were going to get through it. You've got a, a vision and a sense of optimism. What gives you hope about America today? fact that more people are voting than ever before in presidential and off-year elections. In other words, people take their responsibilities in a democracy seriously. I know there's a lot of people questioning things, but they vote. And so long as people vote, the will of the people, I think, will basically say we're sick and tired of the noise and the anger and the finger pointing. We want leaders that are responsible and point to a better tomorrow. Secondly, Hank, one of the things about our system is institutions are more important than the people. Uh, in many ways. In other words, the office of president is more important than the occupant of the office. And the institutions were threatened on January the 6th, but held. And I believe that because they held during a very difficult period, I think they'll come out stronger, which gives me optimism. I understand the compassion of America. Americans care about their neighbors in need uh, all across the board. And that gives me optimism. We're an innovative society. Vaccines gave me optimism that we could come up with a vaccine for COVID in record time. Now, yes, I'm optimistic. Uh, I'm not so optimistic about whether or not my old body's gonna be able to hold up to mountain biking, but I am optimistic about the future of the country. Well, you can sure ride that bike and I never could ride it as fast as you could. That's okay, we, we never raced, but you're still riding it. That's the key. We're both 76 years old. I mean, a lot of people have written us off, Hank. They say, these old, these old geezers, you know, they may have experience, but they're not going to be around much longer. Life begins at 76, Mr. President. Now, let's close with your advice to our young listeners. What advice do you give students and young people who are navigating their lives and careers today? Because this is a rapidly changing world. It's a different world than we came into. So what advice do you give people? 
My advice is be willing to listen to different opinions without getting angry. Understand how the other person thinks. Keep an open mind. That doesn't mean you can't defend your beliefs, but you know, you may learn something by listening to somebody else. Another piece of advice is don't only communicate via machine, but sit down with somebody, look them in the eye so that you can establish a sense of empathy. You know, I'm worried about the post-COVID era of kids being shut out of school and they miss that whole social relationship important to developing. I'm worried about companies not having people at work and, you know, going on Zoom and uh, all the time. And I think we're going to have to get back to a society. And I, I urge the young people to take the lead in this, where you sit down with uh, somebody and listen face to face. I know when I was president, and you know, when you're a leading an institution and the Secretary of Treasury, the only way that you really communicate with somebody is first understand how they think. And once you understand how they think, you can communicate better. And the only way you can figure out how they think is look them in the eye. And Mr. President, I'm going to add to that because I saw it real time from you. Because when I came on the last two and a half years of your presidency, you said one of the reasons I'm bringing you on is I want you to listen. I want you to work with Democrats and Republicans up there. And so you encouraged me and I did to build a relationship with with Pelosi and with Schumer and with Barney Frank in addition, because you can't get anything done unless you able to work and compromise. And we needed that during the crisis, right? Absolutely. Uh, the market helped when it got corrected by like $750 billion in one day when they wouldn't pass TARP. But th this is an issue most Americans can't even discuss rationally, Hank. First of all, the taxpayers got their money back plus interest. Secondly, we didn't have a depression. And thirdly, interesting lessons learned case, which may be applicable to today's period. One of the things, you know, you get these ideologies about free markets, right? And one of the things you realize is if we didn't take actions, there weren't going to be any markets left to defend, right? Yeah, I did. I told you, I said, you handle the policy, which you did brilliantly, and I'll take on the politics. Because bailing out Wall Street with taxpayers' money was not a real popular move. And people are still somewhat angry about it. On the other hand, I defend what we did to the hill. The right decision then, is, and it would be the right decision today under same circumstances. It sure would. So, Mr. President, thank you. This has been terrific. You've covered a lot of ground, given our listeners a lot to think about, and provided some sorely needed inspiration. Hank, you're a good man. Thanks for your time. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.